BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, the Point Reyes National Seashore. It's known for its beauty, but its waters have always been treacherous. We visit a mysterious little cemetery that pays tribute to the forgotten men who patrolled these shores over a century ago. Regardless of those conditions, if there was a rescue to be done, these individuals did it and an unlikely coalition in the Sacramento Valley redefining what a wetland can be. We will only conserve what we know, and that's what we all have to come together for as Californians. Plus, the story behind Whiskey Town, a gold rush town that fell into the drink. I'm Susie Racho, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Point Reyes, about an hour north of San Francisco, is famous for its rugged beauty, a place where people go to rest, hike, and to eat good oysters. KQED's Carly Severn explores a forgotten spot that holds historical clues about the dangers of Point Reyes and the men who once guarded its shores. So I was driving one day to the famous Point Reyes lighthouse, and I only really noticed the sign because it sounded so odd. It said Historic Life-Saving Station Cemetery. So I did what I later learned hardly anyone does and took the exit. And climbing up a small hill, I found four graves hidden in a knoll of cypress and eucalyptus trees. Headstones marking the bodies of four young men who all died around 130 years ago. The names on these headstones are Fred Carstens, Andrew Anderson, John Corpola and George Larson, all young immigrants, they say, from Sweden, Finland and Germany. They were surfmen, members of what we now call the U.S. Coast Guard, but back then it was known as the life-saving service. And in a place like Point Reyes, life-saving was relentless work. If you've ever seen some of the stormy conditions in the Point Reyes seashore when we have pounding surf coming in, it's frightening to think that they did that. That's John Delosso, who's worked in Point Reyes for the National Park Service for 35 years. He was kind of happily surprised I wanted to come find out more about this cemetery. No one ever really asks, he says. And this place is so peaceful and so still, it is easy to forget that just a few miles away, the ocean is raging. Look down at your left palm, John tells people, and see how your thumb juts out. That's Point Reyes, stretching out 10 miles into the Pacific. 
The first recorded shipwreck on the West Coast happened right here in 1595. And since then, for centuries, the beaches were littered with the carcasses of ships who ran aground, making the turn into San Francisco Bay. Back then, the people here often had to watch as those passengers drowned in the waters in front of them. They couldn't rescue them because, in a place like Point Reyes, the surf is the thing that will kill you. And that's why the life-saving service, why the surfmen, came here around 1890. The U.S. life-saving service did have a motto, and that was, you must go out, but you don't have to come back. We don't know a lot about the young men in the cemetery, but we know their work was dangerous and punishing. Fog and wind alone, you know, winds have been clocked at the Point Reyes Lighthouse at 133 miles per hour. Very, very unsafe. Regardless of those conditions, if there was a rescue to be done, these individuals did it. There were no motorized boats or radios or powerful searchlights like the Coast Guard has today. These men were dragging their small lifeboats across the hard sand through mounds of driftwood and rowing out to a sinking ship in swells that reached as high as a single-story house. And when the churning waves prevented them from reaching a wreck, they'd rescue exhausted, freezing survivors by rope, hauling them high over the waves. Sausalito News, December 19, 1890. Last Friday morning, the government life-saving station was the scene of a catastrophe whereby two young lifesavers lost their lives. I assumed that these four surfmen died in the same accident, but then the death dates on those headstones, they're different. As the logbooks and local newspapers like this one reveal, they died in three separate tragedies. So dangerous was this work, this life, that they died in daily training, not even making a rescue. When a huge breaker came rolling in, catching the stern of the boat and overturning it on the port side in doing so, Captain Locke was able to extricate himself with only a bruised leg. Not so with Karstens and Anderson, who were beneath the waist of the boat. Being hit by the weight of solid wood like that, with such force, it would have felt like being hit by a truck. And just two years later, another of the surfmen died in the same spot, in exactly the same way. The San Francisco call. It was found that Larson had been struck by the gunwale of the boat as it capsized, and the blow rendered him unconscious. The scene of the accident is regarded as an unlucky spot. And I found out the fourth man, John Corpola of Finland, wasn't even anywhere near a boat when he died, hours after patrolling the freezing wet beach. Station logbook, 2 March 1891, Corpola complained of having chills and a headache. At 6 a.m., 3 March 1891, he was found dead in his bed in his room. You know, I think they were kind of a, a different breed of individuals, so this is about lives of sacrifice and service, and that's, that's exactly what they did. But these four surfmen, they aren't the only bodies buried here. When I walked further up this hill, I saw a cluster of yet more headstones, all with the last name Clawson. Why? And John tells me this land belonged to a Swedish immigrant called Peter Henry Clawson. One of these graves is his. And back when the four surfmen died, this ranch land was his home. This was the Clawson family graveyard. Mr. Clawson, at the time, realizing that there was no place to bury 
these individuals, and they were, for the most part, very young men. Um, he decided to put a plot of land aside on his ranch and create this small little cemetery. I still wondered why would Clawson make this space in a place he'd already buried his father and his wife, where he knew one day he'd be buried too. But then I found this tribute to him in a local paper, written by a friend just after his death as an old man. Marin Journal, November 25th, 1915. He loved the Salt Sea and joyed to be near it. Many times before his health failed, he would ride for hours along the sandy beach, looking upon a long line of breakers and perhaps recalling visions of the storms that he had passed through as a sailor. Clawson used to be a sailor from the age of 15. It was men like him that the surfmen gave their lives to rescue. They laid him down where he liked to be, close to the sound of his loved sea. He was also no stranger to the terror of a rescue. When a British ship ran aground in Point Reyes in 1874, who was there diving into the icy waters to help but a young Captain Clawson. He stripped himself of his clothes, dove through one of the high breakers that came rolling into the shore, and fought his way through the surges to the side of the ship. Grasping a rope which hung alongside, he pulled himself hand over hand onto the vessel. And finally, there's this. All the Scandinavians on Point Reyes called him not Captain, but Papa Clawson. They came to him for advice, sympathy, and comfort which he never denied them. So the four immigrant surfmen probably weren't just courageous strangers to Clawson. You don't bury strangers with your family. These young men were, in all likelihood, his friends. But maybe it's right that a place as hidden and still as this keeps a few secrets yet. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven in Point Reyes. Without Googling it, what would you say are the top crops growing in California? Almonds? Strawberries? Pot? Well, those are all up there, but so is rice. After Arkansas, the Golden State grows the most rice in the country. Drive north from Sacramento and you'll find thousands of acres of rice fields. But like a lot of agricultural development, rice growing took away habitat from native wildlife. For her series, California Foodways, reporter Lisa Morehouse tells us about an unusual coalition working to change that. Just outside the tiny town of Richvale, fourth-generation farmer Josh Shepard maneuvers his ATV on levees, his dog Tonka in tow. He's showing me rice fields flooded with a few inches of water, but it feels a little more like we're on a bird-watching tour. Oh, we got some egrets, some sandhill cranes. We've got the curlews, we got ibis. We can see a large uh, grind of geese and, and some ducks. Yep, big great blue herring flying in front of us here now. 
a lot of migratory birds, but why are so many of them on a working farm? They use these rice fields as their uh, surrogate wetlands that, that used to naturally exist, you know, 100 years ago. M- most of those natural wetlands have been uh, developed over, but, but these rice fields are a perfect substitute for that. Before the gold rush, the whole Central Valley was like a bathtub. Rivers filled with water, which then slowly spread out through natural wetlands. Migrating species stopped to feed here. Salmon going to and from the ocean. Birds flying from Alaska and Argentina. But with the development of agriculture, dams, houses, and roads, California lost almost all of its natural wetlands, over 90%. And now the northern bit of the Central Valley, the Sacramento Valley, looks like a quilt of perfectly level rice fields. When I meet Shepard on February 1st, he's purposely changing water levels in his fields, all for the birds. All right, Tonka, here we go. We're going to release some water. As his dog splashes in the water, Shepard kneels on a levee at a concrete gate, tugging at a few boards of lumber which hold all the water in the field. A little bit of water spilling out now, and as I keep pulling more of the boards, we'll ultimately have, you know, maybe a little rush of water. It's just that easy. Government and nonprofit groups pay Shepard and other farmers to add water to some fields, or, as he's doing now, release it bit by bit over a month. That gives migrating birds a few more weeks of feeding time by turning the Sacramento Valley into a checkerboard of flooded fields, puddles, mudflats. Those different habitats attract different types of birds, which need to fuel up before their long journeys north to nest. This is a curlew, right, with that crazy yeah. beak? Yeah, a little piper, shorter leg guy. with. But you see them dipping into the, into the uh, shallow water there, and they're looking for bugs. They're, they're eating breakfast, what they're doing. I saw a recent study of one of these programs, and it turns out birds are using managed rice fields at rates up to three times higher than ever recorded. Of course, creating good bird habitat also helps create good PR for the rice industry. Rice is among California's top 10 most water-using crops. The Rice Commission's website homepage features a video of snow geese landing on a field. But Shepard himself admits... You know, there was a time even in the rice industry, we... We weren't the poster child of all the environmental stuff that we, uh, you know, have have adopted to. As a kid, Jessica Lundberg heard people complain that rice farmers mucked up the air by burning fields, a cheap and effective way to get rid of the straw left over after rice harvest. It was terrible. All of the fields would go up in in maybe a two or three week period and the valley was just socked in with smoke and you couldn't really even see the foothills. Her family's business, Lundberg Family Farms, stopped this practice in the 1960s. Her grandparents lived through the Dust Bowl before moving here and saw how farmers needed to steward the land. In the 1990s, the state significantly restricted burning in rice country. So farmers started flooding fields instead to decompose that rice straw. That attracted insects and birds. I remember seeing a difference. Absolutely. It's, it was pretty striking. I mean, it took several years, but it doesn't take birds long to, to tell their friends that there's some good stuff going on over here. <laughs> so millions of migrating birds visit the Sacramento Valley, but it's still working ag land. I wondered, do birds and machines want to be on the same fields at the same time? 
In early summer, I meet up with Regina Stafford and her team from the California Waterfowl Association in a rice field that's about to get tilled. They have two big ATVs, a rope and tin cans filled with gravel. So we're setting up um, what we call a drag rope. Tied between the ATVs. And the rope kind of spins on those swivels as we go. It's nothing high tech for sure, is it? (laughs) Ducks love to nest in dry rice fields before planting season. But when workers bring out the big machinery, they could easily miss the nests and crush them, eggs and all. To avoid that, Stafford and her egg salvage team drive these ATVs slowly, in parallel, down the bumpy field using these simple noisemakers to flush the ducks. We just had a hen flush from her nest, so we're going to stop and check it out. Team members place the eggs in cartons and add some down for protection. So what happens to these and all the salvaged eggs this team collects? They go to a nearby hatchery and grow into ducks. A few weeks later, Regina Stafford's leading an educational program, teaching kids how to release ducks onto habitat. Remember, they can't fly, so we're not going to be doing any kind of duck chucking, okay? We're going to crouch down here on the count of three. One, two... Three. Make good choices! (laughs) Stafford tells me her employer, California Waterfowl, saved nearly 4,000 eggs last year. Now, it's a hunting organization, and this land that houses the hatchery and the habitat, it's a hunting club. I asked Stafford, are they just saving eggs to make more ducks for hunting? She says habitat like this, paid for by hunters, helps support all the birds that migrate through this area. We will only conserve what we know, and that's what we all have to come together for as Californians and, and really try and be on the same page, whether whether we agree on all aspects of it or not, but uh, habitat and conservation is, is crucial. So if hunters, farmers, and conservationists all come together for birds who find surrogate wetlands in these fields, I wondered, could other wildlife benefit from rice? Scientist Jacob Katz says, yes, salmon can. Two million salmon once came through the Golden Gate and into the rivers of the Central Valley. And what we think we're looking at here is the key to that kind of abundance again. I meet cats at a large rice farm full of swans and sandhill cranes. His colleague puts on waders and collects samples by tossing a plankton net into the Sacramento River, then a nearby canal, where they find there are very few bugs for fish to feed on. But when Katz holds up the sample taken from a flooded rice field... This sample is just absolutely teeming. It's writhing. And if a salmon gets to eat from this kind of water... It's going to get fat, it's going to get robust, it's going to pack a lunch for the long journey down to the ocean, and it's going to have a much better chance of returning as an adult. Katz and his team found that by letting salmon feed in flooded rice fields, they grew seven times faster than fish in the nearby river channel. Now, he's experimenting with the best ways to move this bug-rich water from rice fields out to the rivers where fish actually feed. I think most people think that endangered species are inevitable. And what our work is showing is that that's not the case. And so what we're trying to do is say, 
hey look, we're not going back. We're never going to be able to recreate tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of acres of waving tule in wetland. But if we understand how that system worked, if we understand the mechanisms that created that kind of abundance. Then, he says, we can learn how to share landscapes for the benefit of fish, birds, and agriculture. For the California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in the Sacramento Valley. This piece was produced in collaboration with the Food and Environment Reporting Network, a nonprofit investigative news organization. So both hands on the trolley. Don't forget to cannonball. Okay. There you go. Woo! Every week on the California Report magazine, we want to take you on a road trip to visit the places and meet the people who make the Golden State unique. Growing up on the border, we all make fun of immigration because it's a way of coping with a strange reality. In this photo, I'm 230 pounds. I have a really bad tattoo and stretch marks, and I feel beautiful in my body. Among your many projects, you have a podcast called Denzel Washington is the greatest actor of all time, period. How do you squeeze out 118 (laughs) episodes of riffing on Denzel? To make sure you don't miss a show, subscribe to the California Report magazine podcast. Look for the bear with the white earbuds wherever you get your podcasts. The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Okay, raise your hand if you've never fought with your spouse, partner, significant other, whatever. You guys, well, you you can stop listening. This story is for the rest of us, especially those of us who've been in couples counseling. Did you ever wonder what made the therapist such an expert? I mean, what's their marriage like? April Domboski, health reporter for the California Report, has wondered that herself. So she went to a therapist conference in L.A. to find out more. Harville Hendricks and Helen Hunt have been married for more than 30 years. They work as a therapeutic team, and now that their six kids are grown, they've been traveling the country teaching a course called Safe Conversations. Talking is the most dangerous thing people do. Listening is the most infrequent. Instead of calling their work therapy, they prefer relationship education. They teach people to look in each other's eyes and take three deep breaths before talking, and to say things like, is now a good time to give you an appreciation? Maybe you appreciate something about their eyes. When they ask the audience in L.A. to find a partner and try this, people are into it. It's a room full of 500 couples therapists, after all. Then repeat back what you heard. But Hunt says they do get pushback when they try it with churches at home in Dallas. Most of you think, oh, well, it's easy for Harville and Helen to talk about it, but they're not married to a jerk. I'm married to a jerk. That stuff's never going to work on my marriage. But Hunt says she and Harville could be jerks, too. For years, they were on the brink of divorce. They griped at each other all the time. What we finally decided to do was to go zero negative. Go zero negative. It's now one of the catchphrases in their presentations. It means they stopped putting each other down. We ended the offhand comments like, what? Where did you get an idea like that? Or the stare, like, how could you possibly? Um, And what we discovered was that put-downs are endemic in human conversation. We didn't know, I didn't know, that we were being so like everybody else. Hendrick says stopping the negativity is just the start. 
you also have to say nice things to each other. It turned out to be it's like a garden. Uh, you can get the weeds out of the garden. You still don't get any tomatoes. A lot of therapists laugh when people say, you must never fight with your spouse. Psychologist Stan Tatkin and his wife run a therapy institute near L.A. They focus on the neuroscience of connection. You know, my daughter will say, yeah, you're a so-called relationship expert. Do you really want to be doing that? That, for Tatkin, means acting like a three-year-old when he's angry, getting irritable over his wife's driving, or generally taking her for granted. The patients that I work with are also inspiring to me. And many times I'll sit through a session and I'll think, I'm going to go home and apologize. (laughs) He says he and his wife do have fights, but the key is to resolve them quickly. Don't let things fester. L.A. psychologist Marion Solomon says she learned from watching her patients what to fight about. They argue about things like what restaurant to go to for dinner. You know, some of the couples I work with. And after they finished arguing and they agree on it, they argue about how, how do we get there? What route do we take? She studied attachment theory and learned that people aren't really fighting over those little things. They're stuck in dynamics they had with their mother or father that they've recreated with their partner. Solomon learned to control her reactions when the little things didn't matter. If something was really important to her husband and not a big deal to her, she gave in. He did the same for her. If your partner's under stress, that's the time to get stronger and to get my cortex in line and say, I can't be upset when he's upset. In other words, she says, a good marriage is a partnership where only one partner goes crazy at a time. For the California Report, I'm April Dimbosky in Los Angeles. And in the spirit of full disclosure, April herself is married to a therapist. Place called what? 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 Como? What? Starting route to Whiskey Town. And now it's time for another installment in our series, A Place Called What? About California places with unusual or surprising names. Listener Tim Meisner sent us a note wondering about Whiskey Town in Shasta County. To get the story behind this booze-soaked moniker, we called up Jay Thompson. He grew up nearby and works at the Shasta Historical Society. It was a gold rush mining town and there was just pack mules bringing supplies in. There was no road there yet or anything, but the pack mule had a barrel of whiskey on it and they were crossing a creek and it fell off and broke open and then they named the creek Whiskey Creek and then from there they just went ahead and called the name Whiskey Town. I was thinking later that it kind of shows the gold miner's sense of humor. A hotel there, a couple other brick buildings. You know, so that's what it was. The town is virtually non-existent now. It was. It's under a lake, a beautiful lake called Whiskey Town Lake. You know, there's a few ruins underneath the water. So there's just a little bit. You know, under the water is all you can see, I guess. And then they, you know, they had the cemetery. So there's still a historic cemetery there. They moved, exhumed everybody there, and re-established it. That's about it. 
Is there a California place name that you've always wondered about? Let us know and we'll see if we can dig up the story. Send your suggestions to calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. The technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Rob Spate. Our senior editor is Victoria Malione. David Marks is our web producer. Nadine Sabai is our intern. Our team also includes Carrie Feibel, Bianca Taylor, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coco is back next week. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.